Thank you for those men that filled in for me on that vacation of mine. Thank you very much. I was praying you wouldn't do too well. <laughs> First Samuel chapter 22. This is a good one. I think many of them, all of them in the Samuel, the story of David, the struggles with Saul. Very exciting, very educational. And choosing sides is the topic. Could have gone in so many directions with a topic for this, this section. But I think that's the, where the message lays for us this evening. Yeah, faith, to be authentic, will be repeatedly tested uh, and that those testings will quite often involve other people. We find ourselves face to face with wrong, right actions of those that are around us. And of course, sometimes we have to make hard choices. Choices uh, as to which side we're going to be on. We're going to side with what's right or what's wrong. We're going to side with God or, or not with God. And uh, that's going to be in the story this evening. There are consequences for choosing God. If you're going to serve God, there are going to be consequences. And there are going to be rewards. If you don't choose God, there are going to be consequences and there will be no rewards. Uh, this is what the Bible teaches us. In these difficult days of David's life, while others were against him, he chose to draw near to God, and he stayed there. There were four psalms, really five, written since he escaped the assassins that came to his house. So he's very busy talking to God, very busy getting it down on paper uh, for us, well, parchment, uh, for us to be able to examine today. Uh, the flaws of the Bible's heroes are not covered up by God. They're, they, they're laid before us, but so are their strengths. Much benefit in that. There are four Psalms, two from, he had one escaping the assassins, two about his crazy behavior for seeking the help from the world in, spiritual, in a spiritual situation. And then he has uh, two from this chapter, possibly two. Uh, one about Doeg the monster, and then one about him being in the cave. Psalm 142 is likely written about this episode in the cave, though there is another one coming. Spurgeon says this about David's praying to the Lord in these days of struggle. Had David prayed as much in his palace as he did in his cave, he might never have fallen into the act which brought such misery upon his latter days. How true. Here is a man being hunted. His life was being hunted. He didn't have problems with you know, co-workers and peers and just health issues. Those are serious problems, trivializing them. But his life was being hunted by an army. He was an enemy of the state for serving God. And during that time, he, he seeks God. But then when he gets to the high life in the palace, um, he still seeks God. He cannot take that away from him. He just got tripped up. We'll get to that when we get to Second Samuel. The events, again, in this chapter. 
involving Psalm 142 and Psalm 52. I'll reference some of the other psalms maybe as we go along. But the characters, the characters in this chapter, uh, all of them needing, well, let's just cover their names, the main ones. David, of course. Then there's David's family, his brothers and his mother and his father. And that extends to Moab, where his in-laws are. There will be his new friends, and they were under great pressure. Abimelech the priest and the priest with him. Saul, of course. Saul's men. And then there is, again, satanic doag, a special kind of a rat of a man. These are the characters. They all had to make a choice, every one of them, having to do with God. It wasn't just, you know, we all make choices, but these were serious choices. Proverbs 12, verse 26, The righteous should choose his friends carefully. The way of the wicked leads them astray. Oh, man. If we, could, if we could just get that into us. Billy Sunday, I don't want to say a wild man preacher. He was a bit extravagant, but he, he preached the word. Billy Sunday said, A man who lets the devil choose his friends will soon do anything the devil wants him to do. Isn't that accurate? hang with the wrong crowd. You think you're tough or you think you're, you're cool. And Satan is just basting you for the roaster. One of the most tragic and demonic sections of the Bible is this chapter. Let's look into verse 1 now. David, therefore, departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Well, here begins the epic wilderness experience of David. This cave is located uh, about halfway between Gath, where he escaped King Hakish, acting like a madman, and Bethlehem, his hometown, and not too far from the Valley of Elah, incidentally, where he slew Goliath. For the next seven to ten years, according to my calculations and others too, he's going to be on the run. He's going to be hunted. That's a long time. Not only living in caves, but caves were a part of it. How frustrating to have been so successful with God's people, only to suffer God allowing you to suffer persecution. You would think that the rewards would be now, that uh, he would be spared these things. And he's not. And we are learning from it. And, uh, of course, this king that is persecuting him happens to be a king whom God sent the great prophet Samuel to anoint. Things went, as we would say, haywire. They weren't supposed to turn out this way. David was supposed to slay the giant and serve Saul and live happily ever after. Marry the, the king's daughter. And it did not turn out that way. Great victories, great praise, great position. But what good is all of that if you become a fugitive living in a cave? And still he prayed. Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man 
who trust in him. There's a psalm that comes out of this period in his life where he is being chased, where he is under great pressure. That's not the only thing he says. In his, he rides the roller coaster. One minute he's up praising the Lord in his psalms, we find out. And the next minute he's down, Lord, where are you? I'm crying out to you. I cannot find you. And again, Psalm 142, which I'd like to, that would, that would be nice to just go over a little Psalm 142. I'll take just verses 4 through 7, the bottom part of verse 4. No one cares for my soul. That's where he was. Have you been there as an adult? Maybe as a kid, you know. I don't like my mommy because, you know, she didn't, something like that. But as an adult, it's, it's more intense. Um, when you feel no one cares for your soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors. For they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Take me out of this prison. Deliver me from this jail. I can't just go to wherever I can't just go to wherever I want. Not without risk of being murdered. And so that's the man we're looking at as we go through this 22nd chapter. Uh, dependent on God, faithful to the Lord in the darkest of times. And he says here in Verse 1, so when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to him. He was alone. We, we read from Psalm 142, verse 4, no one cares for my soul. But of course, people did care for him. But he felt, you know, what? it wasn't helping him. That they loved him was not getting this monster off his tail. He's still being chased. But, oh, he valued that love. And so when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to him there. So David had men with him when he left the temple and got, went to Gath. And then he escapes Gath. He's got men with him. And evidently, word gets out. He's holed up at the cave of Adullam. His family, they're in jeopardy themselves. They're in danger from Saul. Saul is going to voice that. He's going to speak about the house of Jesse, which means he's, you know, he's going to eliminate them if it serves his purpose. So, word is out. And the first members of his following were his family. First ones to come to him. They knew he was in trouble. They were in trouble. They believed they could help, no doubt. And now they are refugees of this silly little war. It's so unavoidable, so avoidable, so, so ridiculous. It costs to belong to the king, though. It costs... To be on the side of God. Next will come the misfits. The motley group. The outcasts. The malcontents. Later the leaders. And later the tribal. The, the, the tribes. The nation will be formed. Through this time. David has this great ability to appeal. To kings. We'll cover that as we move on. It's so spread out so much. Verse 2. And anyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. 
So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. It certainly reads as though everyone came, but only 400. So, and there are a lot more people who are discontent and in debt and, and uh, in distress. This is no way to build an army. These misfits coming to you like that. People who were socially in trouble, who emotionally in, in distress. Uh, but uh, these men and their families came out to him. They were attracted to him. Donald Rumsfeld was uh, once our, I think, Secretary of Defense, said, you go to war with the army you have and not the army that you want. <laughs> well, that's true here. Uh, not everyone was doing well under Saul's leadership. In fact, very few were. But these managed to come out. They're probably mostly at this point from Judah, Benjamites from Saul's own tribe will catch up with David later, but not yet. That will come uh, when he's out at Ziklag. Well, uh, many times, those who come to follow Jesus are just this way. But oftentimes, those who, have, who are not in distress, who are not in debt, who are uh, not in a state of discontent, they too can come to Christ when they see their sins. I, I had a friend years ago. He, he says, you know, I'm around all these guys with these, you know, drug addict stories and drug pushing stories and gang bangers that come to Christ. But me, I was doing pretty good. I can't, he came to Christ. Well, that was me too. I wasn't doing too bad when the Lord got me. So it's not always when you are in distress. That distress means they were squeezed because of this evil ruler. They were in debt because Saul was not mining the economy. All he wanted was David's head. And, of course, they were discontent. They were bitter because the evil ruler created such a situation. This, this is a verse that you do a whole topical sermon on. It is a lot of meat there to ponder. But no matter what, before we come to Christ... Spiritually, we are in distress, we are in debt, and we are discontent spiritually. Jesus said this about the, the evil ruler. Just this quick comment. He says, the ruler of this world is judged. Saul was the ruler of Israel. And he, he of course, was judged in the sense that uh, the sentence was passed, but it just was not executed yet. So he became, it says here in verse 2, captain over them. He did not turn them away. He said, I got my own problems. I don't need this. He doesn't do that. He takes them in because he's got a shepherd's heart. And he is going to have so much influence on these men that it will last. It lasts to this day. David has an effect on the nation of Israel. The prophets, you know, when they wrote their, their prophecies woven within them. Uh, is the name of David, is the influence of David. He influenced the worship in, uh, of the entire nation. And it all starts here. Here's the nucleus, not only of uh, the change in heart of the people, the beginning of the mighty men, but the lasting influence of David, even into deep into the New Testament church and into the millennial reign of Christ. Quite profound. They made their choice to come to him. And all he had was a cave to offer them. 
nothing else. But they made their choice. And that's, you know, again, our topic tonight are these are choices that we have to make. And here we see it happening. Spurgeon, again, happy are they who can follow a good cause in its worst state. But theirs is true glory. That's loyalty. That's commitment. When, you've, when the cause that you're following doesn't offer hope, but it's right. It's true. And these are the ones that had come to him. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Problem is, many people don't stick around and wait for that. They think that it means I'll give you a, a resort in this life. And so he's captain over them socially, militarily, but also spiritually. Again, Psalm 34, verse 11, a psalm of David. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And he did that. That's another psalm from this time. And, and he did this very thing. He taught them the fear of God. The fear of the Lord. So much a part of Psalm 119. Uh, and continuing verse 2. And there were about 400 men with him. Not even half an infantry battalion. Not very many men at all to fight Saul. But a lot to care for. A lot to look out for. A lot to influence. And so that's how you look at it. Well, what, you get all you get these men that come to you, and you can either say, I, I don't want your problems. Please leave me alone. I'm better on my own. Or you can say, hey, I can be useful to God. He had to have known that God had sent these men to him. He had just written in Psalm 141 that no one cared for his soul, and now he's got a bunch to care for himself. Pretty exciting to see the hand of God working like this. So if we're going through problems and we read this story, uh, we have no right now to expect immediate relief from whatever's burdening, burdening us. As I mentioned, seven to ten years for being good. He did nothing wrong. He did nothing to bring this on himself. And there it was. In chapter 23, we'll read that this number grows to 600 men. Another 200 he'll pick up, and then more and more and more. <clears throat> and very exciting when we get to First uh, Chronicles 12, and David is being crowned king of all the na nation and all the men and troops that are coming out. And the comments about them is very uh, exciting. Verse 3 now. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. He's got a shepherd's heart, even for his aged parents. He's looking out for them. This David's great-grandmother was Ruth, the Moabitess. And there are family ties here. So he puts that relationship to good use. Jesse, David's father, who he's bringing there, he's now amongst cousins. Probably still a Jewish remnant there nonetheless. Ruth was Jesse, David's father's mother, uh, grandmother, of course. Now, here's an interesting uh, combination. Ruth was a Moabite that had been taken in by Naomi, a Jew, and then to the promised land. But in this, it's a reverse. Jesse and his wife are Jews, and they are taken in outside the promised land by Moabites. The hand of God. I think one of the lessons here is don't needlessly burn bridges. 
you know, if you can keep it, you know, me, I might need that later on. And uh, that's what we're learning from this uh, trick in David's life about choosing sides. Verse 4, so he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now, Israel and Moab were enemies. Uh, even back in chapter 14, David, uh, Saul's fighting the Moabites. Being an enemy of Saul happened to work for David in this case. In, in, in this case with Achish also. In, in case with two kings, the Moabite king, the, the Philistine king. An enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so uh, we see this taking place that, you know, again, David gets in front of these people of power. He's got nothing. All right, he, you know, you, he's Saul's enemy, but he's got a little bit more. When I say he has nothing, he really doesn't have a kingdom. But there's still something about this man that's getting him in front of kings. And it is God, and it is the personality of David that God is working with. Uh, God was his shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want another Psalm of David. And so these roots that he had in Moab are, are a benefit to him now. They're making a difference. His parents, again, are, are, have a safe place. He knows that if they, he can't care for them while he's on the run. And so he's obedient to the first commandment with promise, honor your mother and father. The stronghold, that Hebrew word there, is literally Masada. Now, in Israel, there is, uh, there in the southern part of Israel, near the Dead Sea, is this mountain fortress, this giant hill, mountain. It just, it's a fortress. It sticks out. And uh, it's a natural fortress. Uh, that is likely the place that is uh, here mentioned, but it's not guaranteed. It could be another place named a stronghold, but it's the same name. Um, Eve, uh, oh, we'll just move on. <clears throat> Verse 22. Well, no, I'll, you know what? I'll, I'll read this. First Chronicles chapter 8. Some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty men of valor, men trained for battle, who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were swift as gazelles on mountains. And so David picked up um, a few men from the tribe of Gad. Verse 5 now. Um, actually, I have another quote from Chronicles I want to do. First Chronicles 12, it also mentions. Now, First Chronicles, when David is being coronated, but there's these comments. And some sons of Benjamin and Judah came to David at the stronghold. So there's the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe. Some of them defected away from him. Verse 5 now, 1 Samuel 22, verse 5. Now the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold, depart, and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. <laughs> God made sure that a prophet got with this godly man. You would think that, well, David's so godly, bumping out psalms like this. What does he need a prophet for? He is a prophet. But God wants to send an official that's got a, a link direct to the throne of heaven. 
This prophet is Gad. Later on, Nathan will will also have the king's ear. Even until David dies, Nathan will be there. And so as godly as David was, God decided he still needed this official man of God in order to survive. Unfortunately, some Christians think they don't need a pastor. The Bible disagrees with them. And uh, I don't say that because I'm a pastor. I say that because I'm a Christian. I didn't ask to be a pastor. I was called to be one. And like Jeremiah said, Lord, you tricked me. (laughs) I expected other things. (laughs) Jeremiah said that. And when I read that Jeremiah said that, I said, well, I can say it too. (laughs) So, So when we are hurting in life, like David was, you are hungry for a man of God, a child of God, to come into your life. It is a bonus if it is a person in an official capacity, with a calling on their life. Some of you may not have, some of you younger ones may not have gotten to a desperate spot yet spiritually where you can really appreciate this. Um, uh, There's times in my ministry that I know I show up and I change the, for the good, I hope it seemed like, uh, maybe it's a person going into surgery or some other situation, and just because I'm their pastor, they see me and they just get the strength. That's God's doing, not mine. Do not stay in the stronghold, the prophet said to David. Depart and go to the land of Judah. The stronghold's not strong enough. There are other strengths against you, David. And so David listens, receives it, welcomes this word from the prophet and doesn't say, well, I'm the leader, or he doesn't do that. He leaves. So David departed and went into the forest of Herat. And uh, he leaves the stronghold. Now he's in the woods. There's ticks in those woods. Uh, (laughs) uh, Verse 6, when Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree in Ramah, with his spear in his hand, and all his servants standing about him. Who cares? Well, we do care. I don't like this guy so much, I just don't even want to read his name. Uh, Saul now is, of course, fully, he just lives to kill David. That's his whole purpose in life. He gets up in the morning, I want to kill him. He goes to bed, maybe I'll get him tomorrow. He is obsessed, he's demonically charged, he's neglecting, his, his rule as king, he is not taking care of the people or the troops, and this is why he will die at the hands of the Philistines, because he's not doing his job. And so here he is sitting, doing nothing, but stewing in his own hatred for a righteous man. Just stewing, just enjoying his hatred. David's done nothing to hurt this man. Now, by righteous, David being the righteous man... What, what makes us righteous is we agree with God. We side with him. That's what makes us righteous. And Saul is not that. David chose to do that. Saul chose not to do that. He's clinging his spear. Again, that is the spear of paranoia. Verse 8, we'll bring that out. We'll get to 8 in a moment. But he's ready to hurt anybody who, who opposes him. He will not stand for it. Now, there are many weasels like this, but they don't have the power to do something. Well, he's king. He has the power. We've read about this spear in 
1 Samuel 18 and chapter 19 and chapter 20 here in chapter 22. We'll read about it again in chapter 26. And every time it shows up, it has something to do with Saul's insanity influenced by demonic forces. And it's his fault. It's not like, oh, let's feel sorry for Saul. No, he has every say-so in this. It says, and all his servants standing about him. This information that we're reading has to have come from an eyewitness, somebody who was there. That hints of disloyalty towards Saul. There were those that just did not like him and couldn't do anything about it. They were of his tribe. They would fear for their families. It was a nasty situation that they found themselves cast into. But at some point, word gets out about this when the biography is written, this section of David's life. Verse 7, then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? So he's admitting he bought them. He's got money on his side. He has power and influence. David has none of this. They're coming to David voluntarily as we come to Christ. They're going to be forced. These men, some of them, were bought. And Saul selfishly appeals to tribal loyalties. So they get his will done. It's not for the sake of the tribe or the nation or God. This is for Saul. It is personal. He has made this army his own instrument of murder. Hoping to motivate his clansmen against David. And he says, will the son of Jesse... Give every one of you fields, vineyards, and make you captains of thousands, captains of hundreds. He can't even say his name. The son of Jesse. That's how he has to say it. His hatred is so intense. And there's a lesson there. You find somebody that has, you can't just even say the other, show a common decency to the other person. What's wrong with that guy? You know, if you're standing up talking to someone and someone pops into the incoming, pew, into the conversation... And doesn't even make eye contact, say hello, you know, don't be that guy. It's everybody is worth greeting, except Saul. <laughs> That's the only one. Anyway, uh, they are bought and paid for. They're not led by a sense of conscience of, you know, we love this guy, Saul. He's right for us. Uh, the men that came to David, they are. Certainly, they will come to love David very much. You know, David would just say, man, I would love a drink from the well of Jerusalem. And men will risk their lives to get him that kind of uh, just amazing character, this man, David. Verse 8, all of you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is no one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait. As it is this day, David had opportunity to kill Saul, and he will have more, and he won't take it. But that doesn't matter, because this man is so demonically charged. Insecurity is not something to ignore. If you find yourself insecure about somebody else, start checking it, because it can get out of hand. How great a fire, or how great a forest, a little fire can kindle. And this uh, small fire turns out to be a blaze. This man, insane, with self-absorption and paranoia. Listen to his language. All of you have conspired against me. 
There is no one who reveals to me my son. Not one of you is sorry for me. It's like, what a chump. It's like, I can't listen to you. You're a king? Is this regal language? What, what is me, 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 my, me, my? Hi, Saul. Who do you love? I love me, myself, and I, and no one else. He continues, or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. I'm still reading. I'm not adding or repeating. Just check the pronouns in verse 8. That goes back to verse 6. We talked about his spear of paranoia. What is he so insecure about? Self being knocked off the higher hill. This man would never be satisfied. If he could kill David, he'd find somebody else to hate. Well, anyway... Uh, truly, he thought everything and everyone existed for his benefit or weren't worth his attention. And from time to time in life, we come across a Saul. Thank you we don't come across them too often, but we do come across these types of people. They're pitiful. <clears throat> they're controlling. They're harmful. These characteristics belong to Saul, and they belong to some folks we come along the way in life with. And yet there are others who are unwilling to admit that these people exist. Wicked little snakes using God's name to slither. Paul had to deal with it. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's pretty intense. Here's a man of God supposed to has given his life to leading people away from Satan. I'm sending you to Satan because that's your daddy. And you like it over there. So go there. Try that. Maybe, maybe you will recognize you made wrong choices and repent. That's the spirit that Paul is writing that. Can you imagine the church when they got that letter and they heard that? They knew who these people were. Hymenaeus and Alexander. They, ooh. Apostle Paul is pretty upset with these guys. He writes again in 2 Timothy 4. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. In other words, there are people like this. What happens if they're family? There's still people like this. You can't give them a God pass. You may have to change how you handle the situation, but you can't ignore it. And then the, the greater question is, or dangers, that we would ever become like this. We can, we can. We have all the codes built within us to be just as monstrous as anybody else. But we don't have to be that way at all. We can go the other way. We have also held the codes to be Christ-like, at least to, to, go after, <laughs> to go after being Christ-like. I will be satisfied when I awaken his likeness. That's what David said. He's there now. Oh, no, we're here, still waiting. All right, let's move on. Verse 9. Then answered Doeg. Change the music now. It means dog. I think, I think these... I really think some of these names were given by the writers. The guy's name was probably something like Arnold or something. And it just the writer just didn't like him so much. I'm not, I'm not calling him. I'm not going to honor him. Any name, he's a dog. Nabal. I mean, did really, did the parents name him fool? Maybe. Maybe they could tell. You know, he looks stupid. And <laughs> I don't know. But... I have a suspicion, because we catch these Jewish writers in certain areas to throw these zingers in. You know, Ezekiel, what did he call them? I don't even want to say it. He, he, when he calls the, the idol worshipers, he's using a language that is very, very crass. So, yeah, Doeg, 
uh, now he's in the picture, verse 9. Then answered Doag the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, and Abimelech, the son of Ahitub. Now, Ahitub's not a plumbing fixture. It's the guy's name. Uh, anyway, Doeg is as evil as Saul. Again, Saul is not the only evil person. He's just the one we have a lot of information about. David wrote about this moment. He wrote a whole psalm about Doeg. Not this moment, but the whole, how it played out. Verse, well, psalm 52, verse 7, David writes, Here is the man who did not make God his strength. That was his choice. But trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. In other words, Doeg was on Saul's payroll. Did what Saul wanted because he wanted the money. He was disinterested in God's rewards. He wanted to feast in this life on whatever uh, he could get from this life, regardless of how wicked it was. But Donan, again, choices. Here is the man who did not make God his strength. And who is Doeg going to blame for that? He's probably started out as a prisoner of war or a defector from his the Edomites. And he ends up in Saul's employ. And Saul likes the man enough to make him, to put him over, uh, give him a tremendous amount of authority, give him troops. Because when they go to slaughtering the priest, it's Doeg and his men, not the, uh, not the Jewish men. Verse 10, and he inquired of Yahweh for him. Now Doeg is saying, hey, I saw David go to the priest. He went to, he went to that church and he asked about God. That's what he is telling Saul. Ooh, that's so bad. And he inquired of Yahweh for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Acting like, yeah, I don't like the Philistines either, Saul. I'm with you. It's you and me, Saul. Just you and me. That David, that David, this godly man, seeks God, means nothing to Saul. Uh, that just turns Saul against the man of God for being available to be sought. It's not what Doeg says about Abimelech that dooms the priest. It's what he did not say. That's what dooms. What he leaves out. You know, you go to court, you should tell the truth, the whole truth, to keep it in context. What he leaves out is that David lied to the priest. David said, I'm on a mission for the king. But he doesn't tell that story. Not that it would have made too much difference because Saul was just bloodthirsty at this point. And so, uh, like Satan, he tells the truth, but not the whole truth. He needs the truth to make his lie work. He needs parts of the truth. And uh, uh, so David, yeah, David lied to save his own life in a, in a moment of desperation. But Doeg is sinister, and this important fact uh, sealed the doom of the priest by, by hiding it. Verse 11, so the king sent and called Abimelech the priest the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and they all came to the king. So there's some time passing by. David's still in the, in the caves, and 
this time to get the messages back and forth to travel and hold court. <clears throat> but there they were, minding their ministry, doing what the priests were supposed to do, and Saul interferes with that, calls them away from it, so he will slaughter, he, he can slaughter them. Verse 12, and Saul said, Here now, son of a high tub. Look at that. He's got this thing where he can't say the guy's name. He answered, Here I am, my lord. Uh, high tub, incidentally, is a, of the line of Eli, Samuel's mentor. Verse 13, Then Saul said to him, <clears throat> Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword? And have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait, as it is this day. So he's far gone. He's gone. All he can see is himself. He's got this tunnel vision. Everything is about him. And uh, God has turned Saul over to Saul. You don't want me? You want to play these kind of games? You'll find out it's really not a game. Saul never missed a chance to smear David's character, as he's doing here by portraying David as an assassin. David will refute this, of course, when he you know, takes the water jug and spear. He could have killed Saul. And in the cave, it doesn't matter. So, this priest is going to be a victim. And everyone that is listening to this is supposed to believe that David is crazy and dangerous. Because Saul says he is. When really, Saul is the one that's insane. And dangerous. Yeah, you know, you, we see this in movies and TV shows acted out all the time where the innocent person is being smeared as the bad guy and they're on the run. Years ago, there was a whole show called The Fugitive, chasing the one-armed man. Uh, and then, uh, and he, he was innocent, but he's, everybody thought he was guilty. I hate those kind of shows. <laughs> I do. I, I fast-forward a movie now. I love fast-forward. Find out how it ends. And then I'll go back and watch it if I like the ending. Because you're not getting me. You're not jerking my chain. No, you know, no. you're not going to make me like the guy and then kill him. And I'm supposed to say, well, that was entertainment. So some of you like that stuff. That's all right. Pastors will be up on Sunday and come up and get prayer. <laughs> Pastor, I have a hard time picking good shows. All right. I know. I'm unique, but not doesn't benefit me. It's not like it makes me better than anybody's. I still can't dunk from the foul line. Well, verse 14. So Abimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son in, who is the king's son-in-law? Who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Bad word. Should have never said it. Abimelech, you just should have said, I gave him a sword. He, he told me he was working for you. But he, he doesn't. He, he tells the truth. And in this case, the truth will not set him free. This kind of truth will get him killed. He doesn't know that David lied to him, Abimelech, to this moment. And these are impressive words. And those listening who reported this eventually are saying to themselves, this is right. This is who David was. He was faithful to the house of Saul. But Saul doesn't desire the truth. Uh, he's incapable of of processing truth that he does not like at this point. He is that far gone, and the lesson to us is a person can be that far gone. 
I don't know. A lot of you have never dealt with monsters. Some of you have. They're all types. They're the violent ones. They're the sneaky ones. They're the combination thereof. Uh, just, uh, you know, be righteous. Keep your eyes open. And make sure Tail End Charlie has got your back. Verse five, 15. Sorry. Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. So, the, you know, the priest said, I don't know what you're talking about. This is what, I told you what happened. You would think that a, a, reason, a rational man would say, yeah, okay, you know, you don't, can't be held accountable for what you don't know. You, you, you know, it just, you know, and then you, later on, you know, in life you see somebody who's lying and getting away with it. Here's somebody telling the truth and not getting away with it. And so Saul does not act on the word of the man of God. He acts on the word of the pagan man, Doeg. And again, it's something Christians have to watch. Christians go out to, you know, they come to a church, they worship, they hear the word, preach from the Bible, then they go up to the university, for example, or to the workplace, and somebody there contradicts what they've been told about the Bible, and they're foolish enough to believe that guy and, and flush all the work that God had done in their lives away because somebody seduced them. Don't be this person. Saul had a choice. He could believe the priest who had a choice. The priest could have lied and said, you know, David, I wanted to get to murder to you, but I was afraid he was going to kill me. He could have come up, but he just told the truth. And then Saul chooses to believe the other monster, Doag. Verse 16, and the king said, you shall surely die, Abimelech, you and all your father's house. What? This is the kind of man. He's going to do it, too. Uh, when Saul died, the earth was better off. What a tragedy to say that. I mean, when he was born, I'm sure he was a cute little baby like they all... Well, actually, I don't, when newborns, I don't think they're cute. I think they're wrinkled. <laughs> so, they are. They're just wrinkled. Uh, and then they get cute, really cute, to kind of make up for it. But I know you women, you see, oh, he's so cute. I said, boy, you need glasses. <laughs> anyway, he was a cute baby at some point, And this is what happens. Scary. It's kind of scary. Verse 17, then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priest of Yahweh, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priest of Yahweh. So the Jewish servants like, we're not, doing, we're not, killing, the, we're not killing the priest. We even have our, our limits. And... You know, you read this. Have you ever been guilty of striking a child of God, an innocent child of God? Happens all the time, one child of God striking an innocent child of God. I don't mean with a sword or hand or something. I mean with their tongue, the criticisms and the attacks. So we choose, we choose what side we're on. These men made a choice not to slay the priest. We'll pick David off for you, but we're not going to wipe out all these priests. How will it go for these characters at judgment? All these people involved in this story, how does it go for them? Well, we know how it goes with David. Till the millennial reign, his throne is still mentioned. Right there by Messiah, beneath Messiah, but they're mentioned. Um, we know how it goes with Abimelech and 
the righteous in the story. Well, what about these guys? When they died, did God say to them, why did you side with Saul? I, I don't know, but I know it begs the question. Verse 18, then the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. This was a massacre. And for what? They didn't do anything. It's just ministry. Saul knew who to go to, his backup dog, Doeg. Takes one to no one. And this Edomite, this particular Edomite, no regard for the priest of Yahweh. David said of him in Psalm 52, you love evil more than good. Lying rather than speaking righteousness, Selah. Now that Selah is kind of a, hey, think about this while the band plays. That's the closest I can get to it or anybody else. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. <laughs> He's just this giant deceitful tongue. But that David called it. I mean, when he hears about this, because there will be a survivor and they will tell David and David will write the psalm with a broken heart. Uh, verse 19, also Nob, the city of the priest, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing, infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. So the bloodthirst, the butchering, uh, the priest incidentally had no weapons. Now, how do we know? Well, when David said, he said, oh, they're weapons. We don't have any weapons except the sword of Goliath. They couldn't even defend themselves. They weren't expecting something like this from their own people, from their own king, the king that was anointed. Uh, Saul, he could spare, you know, Agag, an enemy king. He just couldn't spare righteous priest. Everything is now criminal with this man. He's just a criminal, full-out gangster. And he, he chooses Doeg, and Joeg chooses him, and uh, Satan has uh, got them... Under his thumb. Verse 20. Now one of the sons of Abimelech, the son of Ahitub named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Verse 21. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed Yahweh's priest. David at this point is now at Keilah. We know that from chapter 23, verse 6. And so he's, he's relocated from the forest. We've, we've trekked him, you know, from the Gath to the cave to Moab, uh, then to the forest of Hereth, and then now he's at Keilah. So he's, he's got to move all the time. It's just, it's just moving. It's like you got to ask you know, people, hey, I'm, I'm moving Friday. Would you, what are you doing? <laughs> Sorry. I'm... Anyway, uh, verse 22, so David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg, the Edomite, was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. If one of those moments with David, I knew it, I knew it, I knew that guy was a rat. I don't know if I, what I could have done differently. I could not have just, you know, pulled my sword out and killed him. David wasn't built that way. He'd have to have, a, you know, a solid reason. But it was one of those moments in life where he sees it unraveling. And then he says, I have caused the death of the person of all the persons of your father's house. Not true, David. Not even close to true. No part of it. This is the effect wicked people like Saul have. 
monsters like Saul do evil and then blame the innocent and the innocent feel blame. It's like, what are you feeling blamed for? You didn't do anything wrong. Um, This is so frustrating because it happens in real life to this day. Saul and Doeg are the devils. Take them out of the picture and you wouldn't have this problem. So David, it is not your fault. Yeah, you were under pressure. Yes, you lied. You're guilty of a lie. You are not guilty of slaying the priest of Yahweh. And uh, it solely rests on Saul's shoulders. Uh, now you, anyway, verse 23. Uh, stay with me. Do not fear. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me you shall be safe. Uh, David is, um, you know, again, takes in another one. But now he has a prophet, Gad, and the priest, Abiathar, with the ephod. He's going to use that. He's going to take it when he goes to war. He's going to consult the priest. Remember, when it was Saul's turn, Saul couldn't wait. Never mind that. And, and he just dismissed the priest and disrespected God. So he's got the priest. He's got the prophet. He has the nucleus of what will be his 37 mighty men. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting to that. These all made a choice to join David. Gad the prophet, the priest, the mighty men. They chose the right side, the righteous side. And uh, we've got plenty more story ahead. So let's pray. Our Father, just uh, fascinating for us, but brutal for those who lived through it. And may we remember that the Bible is, it tells the story, but it's not a fairy tale. It's real lives, real people, uh, very serious business. And so should we be very serious when we come to it, knowing Satan doesn't want us to believe these things are real. So he tells us it's a myth, it's made up, it's flawed, it's untrustworthy. And through your Holy Spirit, Lord, may we always rebuke such gibberish out of hell. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.